Ready to boost sales and grow your business without the BS? Welcome to the Business Growth Show. I'm Sam Dunning, a digital marketing, sales, and business growth evangelist. Tune in and subscribe today as I'll be interviewing business leaders, experts, and entrepreneurs from around the globe. We'll be sharing actionable tips across marketing, sales, and growth without the BS to help you skyrocket your business. And welcome back to a fresh episode of the Business Growth Show. I'm your host, Sam Dunning, and co-owner over at webchoiceuk.com. Today, I'm joined by Gil Cohen. Gil is the founder at Employee Experience Design. He helps companies design employee experiences that improve both the outcomes of the organization and the lives of its employees. Gil, a really warm welcome to the show, sir. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. No worries, man. Looking forward to it. So we're going to be chatting across a, a bunch of things, hopefully, and providing some juicy tips and insights across how we can hire the right employees, but at the same time, give them the set, the, the best experience. Uh, they're not just going to be here for a day, a week, a month, uh, hopefully stay a lot longer and um, help our business grow and help them grow. So I know if I'm speaking from experience, hiring especially is, is no easy feat, let alone retaining them. Um, I mean, from experience here at WebChoice, we've had some great great hires, but at the same time, we've had some real struggles, especially when it comes to hiring sales staff. Um, so I don't know if you've seen any of this, Gil, but from my experience anyway, hiring sales reps is a heck of a game because a lot of them can really talk the talk, walk the walk. They might have the gift of the gab. Everything might look awesome on paper and when they do the interview, but when they rock up and they start hitting the phones or they start doing the the sales um, prospecting work you want them to do, a few weeks in, a few months in, it's like, this is not the guy or gal that hired. Um, Everything they said in the interview went flop. So I'd love to know um, kind of what you think of the hiring process and perhaps share some best practices on what you should be doing and what what you shouldn't be doing as as a business owner or hiring manager. It's it, you've hit you know you've hit something really important there about how hard it is to hire salespeople because if they're any good at selling they could be very good at selling themselves but not good at selling your product so yeah. you have to find the ways to piece through that to understand how do I make sure that this salesperson isn't just telling me the right answer isn't just telling me what I want to hear but sure. they're going to actually live up to it. And so from my experience, from my research, for for my career, the biggest thing that you need to do in terms of making a connection, giving yourself the best odds of the person living up to it, is using behavioral interviewing and behavioral techniques. So there's two aspects of behaviors. There's the high-level ones of what everybody in the company should be doing. Most companies call them values. Uh, You can call them other things. but in terms of values, you need to define them behaviorally because that way you actually know what really matters in your organization. You can't just use big fluffy words like respect and integrity and honesty and expect them to have any sort of meaning. Okay. So the first thing you need to do is you need to set these curbstones for your organization of what does it mean to work here? What are the things that we truly care about? The non-starters that we want everybody in our organization to live up to all the right. sdr on their first day the ceo all of them need to that and then there's the competency behaviors of what specifically are we looking for from salespeople? 
So you need to understand, okay, so what, how have salespeople been successful in the past within your organization? Talk to them, follow them, uh, discuss with them about what are the behaviors that make them successful? And then ask the questions of candidates of, are they already living those behaviors? Find out from them stories if they've shown those behaviors or not. Because if they've shown those behaviors, you're not going to have to work on them. You're not going to have to struggle with them. They're already going to do them, which makes mm. it more likely that they'll end up living up to their promise instead of just being really good at selling themselves, which a lot of salespeople are. But then their behaviors don't back that up. So the research has shown that behavioral interviewing, uh, behavioral uh, methods help you increase the odds of actually getting the person that you want. Interesting. So what I'm taking away from this, Gil, is that there's work research we need to do before we actually jump in. So let's say our business is expanding. Perhaps it's just us. Perhaps we're thinking we've got to a point in we've, we're hitting X amount of revenue. We can't quite serve the customers we want to serve. We need to take on board our first hire. That might be a sales rep. That might be a marketer. It sounds like from what you said there, instead of just jumping in um, getting on all the recruitment polls and, and getting a, a bunch of interviews lined up, we actually need to do some planning beforehand in terms of what you'd nailed there, in terms of what it actually means to work here, what we're looking for exactly, the behaviors, um, perhaps if we've got staff already possess, um, and looking out for those in the interviewees that we're bringing on board. Is, is that about right, or is there other things we need to consider? Well, there are there's a lot of things to consider, but you've hit the nail on the head of where you need to start is you need to do research and really it's about introspection. At mm. this point, it's not about company best practices. It's not about benchmarking. It's not about anybody but you because you are the ones that have to live up to that. So as a founder, when you sit down and think about, okay, so what are the values that we want within the organization? What are the curbstones, the behaviors that we want everybody to live? First of all, you need to start with behaviors that you're already living. They right. can't be aspirational. They can't be ideas. Well, it might be nice if we did this. It might be nice if we did that. You can't change values that easily. You can't just say it. That's why there are so many employees around the world who look at their company's stated values with contempt because they know they're meaningless, because the leaders articulated them in an inauthentic way and then don't live up to them. So why have them? So the first thing you need to do is look internally, be authentic with yourself of what are the things that really, really matter to you that they're non-starters they can't be in competition with each other there's no ranking of core values versus other values it's either yep. a value or it isn't but really yep. it's about introspection and understanding you know if it's just the founder or the founders within yourself if you have brought on staff already trying to understand from them also because they'll know what your lived values are they'll know based on your decisions and your behaviors what you really care about and they can help keep you in check and making sure that those values that you articulate are authentic before you then go to uh, figure out if the candidates actually live up to these values. And the gap in between there is articulating the right kind of questions to be able to That's, that was that. what I was going to say. So is it, is it almost as if we put together a kind of checklist skill of, of all these points we've just ran through in terms of, the behaviors that we believe we follow or that we believe our staff follow, the, the values that our company has, what it means to work here. Do we kind of compile this into a checklist and reel off 100 questions that are potential interview or is there a better way to do it? 
there is a, that is a terrible, terrible way to <laughs> uh, do it. So no, there is a much better way to do it. So when it comes to when you're trying, when you get to the point of the conversation where you want to determine if they have these behaviors, because you'll have obviously your other questions around skills and knowledge and experience, sure. and, you know, the traditional interview questions. But when you get to the behavioral questions, what you have is, like you said, a checklist. Now, when it comes to values, there shouldn't be more than 20 to 25 of these behaviors because you can't overwhelm people. Um, but you have your checklist. Then you determine which are the ones that are really the knockout factors at any given time. And this might change depending on, you know, how you're trying to work through things. You translate them into behavioral questions. The thing about a behavioral interview question is they have to be asked in a very careful ways because the ultimate goal, what you're trying to find is how did this person behave in the past? So it's ultimately tell me a story when you did something. But if say my value is respect and in respect, that means that, you know, if somebody tells you something you disagree with, respecting them means disagreeing with them. Right. Right. So you can't just ask them the question of, so what did you do last time somebody disagreed with you? Or how did you respond or anything like that? Because you can lead the person down a path. Whereas mm -hmm. if you ask them questions around, you know, a time you were in conflict with another person, whereas so you can't put the words in their mouth, you can't lead them with what the behavior that you're looking for in that given question because what you're looking for is their honest response of how they behaved in a given situation so yeah. if they've behaved in accordance with the values with the behaviors that you've set forth then they meet the criteria if they're not living up to those behaviors then they're not meeting the criteria and one really great thing about this and that's really important is that when you're interviewing, it's all about comparing to the profile. It's all about comparing either to the values or the competency profile, not to each other. Because sometimes what happens when you compare people to each other, you're just getting the best of what's available. When yep. in reality, none of them might actually meet the criteria to be great in the job. And so comparing them to the profile and comparing them to the role and understanding this is what we need. I'd rather wait a while till we have the right person than take the best of what's available. And one of the other great things about behaviors, and one of the reasons I love it, beyond the research that shows that it collects better information, is that it reduces the subjectivity. Okay. Because one of the problems in hiring is that we're all human. We all have our cognitive biases. We all make sure. assumptions. I mean, there's there are studies that say we make a hiring decision within the first 90 seconds of the interview. There are some people who believe that's within the first nine seconds of the interview. To take ourselves away from those biases, from those beliefs of, oh, is this person like me? Or, you know, do, do I like the way uh, they answered my pet question? What it does is it puts greater objectivity into understanding here are the behaviors cut and dry. And did they live them cut and dry? And this is also one of the reasons why when conducting behavioral interview, it's best practice to have a panel. That it's not just one person asking the questions, taking notes and having to remember everything, but having one person sort of drive the conversation, asking the questions, focusing on the individual, and the other two people taking notes while also asking questions, probing questions where appropriate, 
it helps reduce the bias of that one person who thinks they heard it one way. Because what happens when you do interviews this way, the panel then meets afterwards and you often find that you heard things differently. Yeah. And you have to calibrate, you have to make sure, you know, because one person was taking notes, missed a, one of the sentences, whatever it is. We're human. We're not going to hear everything. We're not going to remember everything. And so that's why having multiple people around commonly understood behaviors takes away as much as possible that subjectivity, that bias, and puts it more into more objective measures of is this person right for the role and what can they add to the organization? Yeah, like that. And I like the the part about having a panel because like you said, it might be that you completely miss one point or you need to discuss it or you completely, yeah, did, just didn't take on board uh, their point of view. So that does make sense. Um, so with that said, Gil, looking for those behavioral aspects, are there any, because I know when, um, let's, let's use myself as an example. Um, and this probably won't bode well. So when when I was in my my younger years, I'm I'm 30 30 years old now, but probably in my early 20s when I first started out in sales, I used to think jobs like this were all about having the gift of the gap, being able to blag your way through it, and basically being able to to convince the person on the other end of the interview or the phone that you could sell your stuff. Um, when in fact there's a heck of a lot more to professional selling, and I had it completely wrong. Um, glad I finally learned that. But with that in mind, how do we determine if the potential if the interviewee that we're chatting to how do we determine are there any ways or are there not um that we can determine that they're being genuine that they're not being bsing us that perhaps they're giving stories they're giving examples they're showing that they've got the right behaviors um they're showing they understand what we're looking for and they can be a valuable asset are there any kind of red flags we need to look out for are there any signs from your experience that this um, person in front of us is being really genuine or um, how to determine, um, let's say, the, the wheat from the chaff? Ask them for references for their stories. That's what you need to do. So you'll, they'll be telling you stories and you prepare them at the beginning of the interview that they'll be, you'll be asking for this. But if they tell you a story or every time they tell you a story and you ask for a reference and they say, oh, that person doesn't work there anymore. Uh, oh, it happened a long time ago. I'm not in contact with them. And there's yep. never an acceptance of, yeah, here's the person who you can reach out to. Then it brings into question the validity of the story. It, it can happen once in a while. Like if you ask for a reference for one of the stories they tell and they say, you know, I really can't do that for confidentiality reasons or it happened a long time ago, whatever. That's one thing. It can happen once in a while. But if it's happening for all of their stories or it's happening regularly, that is a major red flag that they're not necessarily telling the story accurately. Because I, I can tell you, for example, um, when my brother was in university, he started up a program to go to schools to help them in terms of reading programs and all of this. Except a few years later, when he and his friends were going out for interviews, you'd be amazed about how many of them started up this program. Because right. it wasn't just him who told the story of starting up the program. It was all of his friends who all told the story of them starting <laughs> up the program. Whereas if you actually ask the people involved, only one of them could have started it. So the rest of them might have been scrambling in providing references where he would have been more comfortable in saying, okay, you can call this teacher, you can call this principal, because uh, I was the one in uh, in contact with them. Gotcha. Yeah, like that. That's, that's definitely a, a great way of... Um getting to the facts and, and cutting through the fluff pretty fast. Okay, so 
that's some hiring best practices. When it comes to actually onboarding, let's say we've we've picked what we feel are are the right um, recruits or team members for our company. Are there any things we need to consider when it comes to onboarding um, pe- new people to our team? And I appreciate this is going to vary depending on the industry you're in. But from your experience, Gil, are there any best practices that we should take on board? So the first best practice needs to be seeing it from the new employee's perspective. The problem that most onboarding programs have is the organization looks internally and says, what do we want to accomplish in the first three to six months? What do we want to know about the person? What do we want them to to do? What uh, information do we need to gather? It's all from the organizational perspective. And which isn't aligned with creating a great experience because it's all about, you know, oh, well, you walk in and here's two hours of paperwork that you have to fill out. And then you have to go get your picture and all of these things that doesn't make for a great day uh, necessarily. Whereas um, if you understand what they're going through, because One of the changes in society, especially as millennials have taken over the workforce, is that Gen Xers like myself and older generations, we didn't leave jobs very quickly. We would think if, you know, I can't leave this job under a certain amount of time, I'll be considered a uh, a job hopper, you know, that'll look bad on, on my resume. It's not loyal, all of these things. Millennials, thankfully, and totally agree with it threw that all out the window. They're like, no, you give me a bad experience. I'll go drive Uber for a little while. I'll do something. I'll live at my parents' house. I don't care, but I have better things to do with my life than spend 40 Mm. hours a week working at a bad place. And so historically, we looked at onboarding. Companies looked at onboarding of let's throw all of our information at them and make them enabled to do their job. But the reality is in a modern time, even in COVID, even in the pandemic, the way modern employees view onboarding is as a job trial, as do I actually want to be here? So if they had one experience as a candidate experience and you were great and giving them feedback and bringing them along and all of that kind of stuff, and then all of a sudden when they come on board and it's not the same they'll be looking to leave relatively quickly. And so Mm. you have to make sure that you're aligning what you want to accomplish with the psychology of the human being who's facing a completely new situation. And most people right now are facing a completely new situation where they're not actually meeting their colleagues in person. And so that adds another level of complexity. So if instead of throwing constant paperwork at them, through making making them watch this video and have this person talk at them, have, understanding that how does how do people in this role and you you hit it right that it depends industry to industry, even company to company. Mm. How do our people like to be integrated? How do our people need to be brought on? Because a salesperson might need to be brought on in a different way than say an HR person, because helping a salesperson, you know, find early wins, building their confidence, right. Helping them ramp up in those ways versus an HR person who, in my opinion, should be sitting down and listening and not saying much for the first little while. 
that onboarding is going to need to look a little bit different. Yeah, but that's some good points. I'll just jump in, Gil. Um, so like like you said that now the, the times we're in now, um, people aren't staying in jobs as as much as they did before in years gone by. It's statistically proven. Um, and like you said, quite often when you join a new role, you might be bombarded with paperwork. You got to do headshots. You got to meet the team. You got to do this for an hour. You got to do that for an hour. You got to do this for half an hour. So your first week, your first couple of weeks, calendar are just full of these monotonous admin tasks. Um, it's hard to interrupt, but that's if they've actually prepared for you. Because, that's they prepared that's, for you. That, because there are plenty of organizations that have barely prepared for you. You get your laptop on day four, four or five. You know, you people aren't expecting you there. So one way or another, if you're not considering how they're integrating, you're going to miss something. Good ad. Um, so rather than doing that, let's say we, just like you quite rightly said, we want to give the these new employees the great experience. Ultimately, if we piss them off, if we bore them too much, they're probably just going to think, I don't really like this company, I want to go elsewhere. Um, does that mean we hyper-tailor it for them? So we say, look, what would you like to be doing on your first couple of weeks and kind of really tailor it to this particular individual, which is probably going to be hard work if you're a larger scale company. Um, might be a bit easier if you're a smaller co. Do we speak to our existing team um and like you said whether they're sales reps and say look what what did you like about onboarding what could be improved and get their feedback or if it's hr talk to them and again ask them for the best bits and pieces that we can weave in or is it some is it a diff completely different approach um so it's it's really starting with your existing employees that's really where you need to start is understand okay so what do we have because for what you have already there's going to be good and there's going to be bad and you don't want to just, you know, blow everything up and create unnecessarily work, unnecessary work when you've already got some good things going for you, you know, in terms of onboarding orientation, whatever it is. But then talk to them and understand the friction points. Talk mm. to them and understand which ones of them ramped up faster. Why did they ramp up faster? Because maybe it's they had a conversation with a certain employee who helped everything come together. You know, and help them understand this is how we really do things around here. Maybe it was shadowing a person for half a day. There could be a variety of ways and reasons why, once you dive into it, that the employee experience could be a good onboarding experience or a bad one, but you don't know until you talk to your employees. And then as you bring people on, talking to them and, and, and keeping that feedback loop going. So you've got a new employee. And you talk to them and say, hey, look, you know, part of it is we're always trying to improve. How's your day going? How's your week going? Is there anything you need? Just talking to them and, and understanding, you know, what they're going through, because it's not about what you think it is or what you want it to be. What they're going through is ultimately all that really matters. That's yep. all that really all that really matters. So if you understand that that's all that really matters. What you want to do as an organization is get the best possible understanding of them to dive in as clearly and as accurately as possible and say, okay, this is the reality of today. What are we doing well? What are we doing wrong? Let's adjust. It doesn't need to be a major overhaul of the entire system, or maybe it does. Maybe your system's terrible and you're <laughs> not ready for the people and all of that. But it's taking the things that 
for your people make connections. So for example, uh, I worked for a company a few years back, very social people, very right, right. much like constantly talking to each other, very social group. And so as part of the onboarding there was taking the person out for lunch on the first day with a bunch of people together. Okay. Because it was a part of the culture there of eating together. And that's when a lot of conversations would happen. It's not for everybody. That's not right for everybody. But for those of us at that company, because of who we were and what both the company and the individual were trying to accomplish, it really made sense because it helped people make connections. It helped meet people, not just, oh, this is Gil, he does accounting, you talk to him for these reasons, but you sit around, you meet them, and you find out, oh, this is Gil, he likes this band, he likes this uh, sport, whatever it is, and you get to know them, which then builds the uh, relationships. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And that, that all makes sense. Like you say, it's going to vary for each organization. And and what works is, I guess, a team building exercise, depending on what you do, where your people are based and stuff. But no, I like I like the example. So moving this down to, to brass tacks, um, Gil, rather than so these these things we're talking hiring, right, onboarding, right. When it comes to really keeping our employees engaged, is it just good to reduce churn? Or do, do these things really help our businesses increase revenue, increase bottom line? Um, yes. <laughs> the answer is yes. It, it Obviously, it helps reduce churn, uh, improve retention. And there's, you know, numbers that I could, I could talk to you about that. But then there's also the experience of those who stick around. Right. Because those are the ones who are actually doing the work. So you could have people who stick around. You could create an environment where people stick around a while, but it's not in anyone's best interest that that actually happens. Or certainly not in the organization's best interest that that's happened. So a person who's in a role who's performing at, you know, two thirds productivity over time, that's significant. And one of the resources I would lead people to when when thinking about that is um, there's a concept of employee lifetime value. And if you look up ELTV online, it's a great visual representation of the impact of different employees, the impact of retaining an employee over an extended period of time, the impact of having an employee who's growing and developing versus an employee who's stagnant, uh, an employee who's productive and engaged versus an employee who's just present. And And that is a really valuable tool. And I find it helps demonstrate for leaders who are uncertain about it because when you look at some of the charts and they're really, I mean, they're really powerful when you look at, you know, sales because ELTV is a bit conceptual for a lot of roles. It's not for sales. You can put in real numbers on that and show the power of having one salesperson for five years versus five salespeople each for a year. Yeah. I mean, I I was going to say in terms of sales, obviously you can, you can go by revenue. It's, it's not that hard. Um, Yeah. But when it comes to other pieces of the puzzle, so let's let's disregard marketing because they can these days be pointed to revenue and people can flame me after the show if they want to about that. Um, let's let's talk about things like whether it's I don't know HR or let's say they're in a more technical role. Um, those things are quite hard to judge, are they not? In they terms are, of and so when it comes to this visual, it becomes more of a academic exercise and a demonstration that 
it's pretty, you know, it seems pretty logical and, and, and clear when you when you look through the information. And so when you, you look, you know, two people, uh, one of them's productive, one of them's not productive, the person who's productive is going to bring more value to the organization, uh, mm. one way or the other, however you define value, because a, a good HR team, you know, should be connected to turnover, right? It's not directly their fault or, or their responsibility, but it should be connected on a certain level to turnover. So there are some numbers you can you can point it to, but reality is in the end, it's not so much about showing here's the raw data. It's more just showing, look, when you keep a person happy, uh, productive, engaged, and for an extended period of time, it's they just bring more value to the organization. Yeah. Yeah. And in terms of keeping our, our staff engaged, um, is it about what keeps everyone ticking and learning about each individual, what their motivations are and why they want to be doing the job and then trying to tailor that among the years? Or is it using what's worked for other staff in the past? Because I mean, if we take salespeople, they might be incentivized by money, they might be incentivized by going to President's Club, or they might be, want to win holidays. Um, if they're in marketing, they might be something completely different. HR might be something again. And so is it understanding that or is it just making sure you're taking regular feedback from them as we discussed before or are there other things um on top of those that we need to be aware of that we can kind of do our best to keep our employees engaged which is going to give us the positives of all the things we've discussed so far so there are different levels of customization and tailoring so what mm. you should be doing over time so in, in it's similar to that um the onboarding that we were talking about there yeah. should be a general onboarding for your organization because there is a type of person, the, the values, the behaviors you're looking for. Every organization through its own ways ends up kind of hiring a cohort that has a certain type of thinking. And so when you've gathered the thinking of that group, you have, you know, a 70, 80% solution of this is how our people generally think. This is how our people generally want things. But then there is always that place for that continuous feedback, that individualization of helping managers individualize it. Because that's the point okay. at which they need to do it. Because there's the general onboarding that should be followed that, you know, people in our organization are looking for X, Y, and Z, and we need them to know A, B, and C. Let Everybody needs to do that. But in talking to that, I may find out that, you know, Sam might need check-in calls twice a day instead of once a day because of what he's looking for. Or, you know what, Sam doesn't even like the check-in calls once a day. He needs it every two or three days. And so adjusting, but that it goes to the manager building the relationship with the individual that we're not all the same. We might have kind of sure. general commonalities, but we're not all going to be the exact same. And there needs to be the flexibility within that. Yeah, makes perfect sense. Gil, um, really appreciate you coming on. Thanks very much for covering points across the hiring, the onboarding and the engagement process with our staff. Before we wrap things up, I want to put you on the spot with one tough question. What's one thing we should not be doing when it comes to hiring? What is the ultimate red flag? One thing, um, hiring on gut decisions, yep. hiring based on I on instinct of oh I like this person I think yep. they you know that's where we get into the situations where those salespeople present themselves well, 
and um, all sizzle and no steak. And so a few months later, they haven't produced anything, but they've presented themselves uh, really well. Often that's because of the gut of the hiring manager. Whereas if the hiring manager dove into the behaviors that are needed for the role and that individual has expressed in the past, there would be a mismatch. Yeah. 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 So go back to, to that checklist at the start. Go back to the data. Nice one. Nicely wrapped up. Gil, thank you very much for coming on, sir. Enjoyed thank the you. chat. Appreciate you having Please, me. No worries, man. Please do tell us more about how we can learn from you, how we can get in touch and the best way to find out more place- about Gil. Best place to find me is on LinkedIn, just Gil Cohen. Um, search that, G-I-L-C-O-H-E-N. I'm on there regularly talking about employee experience, human resources, and just people issues at work. That's really where my passion lies. Uh, you can check out my company at employeeexperience.ca and learn more about me and some of my uh, programs. Awesome, man. Gil, thanks once again. Appreciate you coming on. Awesome. Thanks so much, Tim. No worries, dude. And if you enjoyed the show, be sure to hit subscribe to Business Growth Show, where the heck you get your podcast from. We interview business leaders each and every week to provide actual tips across marketing, across growing your business and growing your sales. And with that, we'll catch you on the next episode. Are you tired of hunting for clients? You could be missing out on regular inbound opportunities, all because your website isn't on the first page of Google. Perhaps you're already spending money on marketing, but your website is failing to convert your hard-earned visitors into a consistent flow of leads and sales. Want to learn more about Web Choice's unusual approach that brings idle clients straight to you? Book a free digital marketing assessment today at webchoiceuk.com. That's webchoiceuk.com.